Hey everybody, today's episode of Shoppernomics is brought to you by the Neuromarketing Science and Business Association, the only association for those with a professional interest in neuromarketing. Visit www.nmsba.com for events and membership details. And Decision Breakers, experts in behavior-based shopper strategy, insights, and activation. Email pmcgee at decisionbreakers.com to see how they can help you win your war in-store. Welcome to Shoppernomics, the podcast for marketing and insight professionals who want to stay current on the latest understanding of consumer behavior and decision-making. My name is Phil McGee, and I'm speaking today with Dr. Marco Palma, professor in the Department of Agricultural Economics at Texas A&M University, and whose areas of interest are consumer economics, food choices, experimental and behavioral economics, and neuroeconomics. He's also the director of the Human Behavior Laboratory, which uses state-of-the-art technology to measure biometric and neurophysiological response of human decision-making. He's spoken at more than 300 conferences around the world, and today we're going to talk about one of my favorite topics, self-control, and its impact on shopping behavior and decision-making. But before we get started, Dr. Palma, welcome to Shoppernomics. Hey, thanks for having me. Hey, it's absolutely our pleasure. So, you know, I gave a brief introduction about you, and I think that kind of captures the, um, the elevator speech of who you are, but why don't you tell us a little bit more about who you are? Sure. So uh, my name is Marco Palma, and I'm the director of the Human Behavior Lab, and I'm passionate about understanding human behavior and finding ways to understand what drives human decisions and how can we use this information to predict what people will do, and more importantly, to try to help them accomplish uh, something that will improve their lives and their well-being. I'm the father of two boys, uh, ages six and nine. And so if we talk about predicting and understanding human behavior, uh, I can tell you that it's a little bit more challenging to try to predict what these two little ones do. Yes. Uh, well, kids will do that to you. They don't neatly fit into models, do they? Oh, no. This is the way for us to really learn about patients and, and many other traits that unfortunately I might lack. Uh, maybe self-control is one of those things. And so that's what we're here to talk about. Well, if, if nothing else, the one thing I do know about you, Marco, is that you are passionate about what you do. Um, you know, it, it reminds me of when I was taking uh, a marketing course for my MBA and the closing sentence of the like 500 page textbook was that marketing is the most fun you will have with your clothes on. <laughs> which, which I thought was kind of funny and, and out of character for the textbook, but um, but nonetheless, that that always stuck with me. And uh, and I got to tell you that um, I think behavioral economics um, and, and understanding decision making and consumer motivations um, even goes a step further. And obviously, you're happy to be doing it. Absolutely. So you mentioned the behavior lab, um, which I talked about in the intro, and we're going to talk about that in a little bit. But I thought we would start our discussion by talking about um, your paper, which was published recently in the Journal of Economic Behavior and Organization, a paper which you titled Self-Control, Knowledge, or Perishable Resource. And, and in fact, let's actually take a step back and start by grounding everyone, as you did in the paper's introduction, on the concept of self-control. 
I, I am extremely passionate about this. I had some amazing learnings about the impact of self-control on food shopping. And it was my introduction to behavior economics and, and, and this whole space of irrational behavior and decision making. So I'm really excited about what we're going to talk about. But why don't we um, get into you know, self-control? What is it? How does it work? And, and for marketers and market researchers, why is it important that we understand it? I think that there is, it's very crucial for us to really come up with a good definition of self-control. And we can think of self-control as refraining from something that, uh, that we want to do, but it requires effort for us to do. Mm. Um, in most cases, um, the definition of self-control has been part of these two selves problem or the dual self issues in which we have a person within us or a region of our brain more specifically within us that is more concerned about the uh, satisfaction today versus a longer term type of satisfaction. So I indulge in some gratifying gratification behavior today in lieu of behavior that might be more beneficial in the future. So for example, I might engage into uh, consumption today and spend a lot of money that I could use to save for retirement. And so I might lack the self-control to control myself and perfectly allocate the money between consumption today and savings for the future. Right. Now, one of the key definitions I want to highlight here is the self-control requires effort. And this is of particular importance because you might ask somebody to exercise self-control uh, by refraining of drinking coffee in the morning. But if you're not a coffee drinking person, you might be wrongfully thinking that the person is exercising self-control, but for a non-coffee drinker, that actually requires no effort. So there's no real self-control in the act of not drinking coffee for mm -hmm. a non-coffee drinking person. And so this is the key definition here is that this level of effort is important for exercising self-control. Because as we measure this activity in many cases and in many previous work that we reviewed when we were working on this topic, there was not a lack, there was not a universal definition for self-control. And I think from an economics perspective, it's important that we clarify that this effort level is, is quite important for this definition. Yes. And, and that's why this was so game-changing for me, this concept of self-control, because effort is not an unlimited resource. So that kind of opens up your thinking to this space of cognitive resources and the finiteness of, of that resource and its impact on self-control as, as that resource you know, diminishes over time. In fact, uh, prior, prior to your work, there were two prevailing models of self-control, um, one which stated that self-control was like a muscle that gets tired as you use it. So, you know, so if you use self-control in one act, like choosing fresh fruit instead of a donut for breakfast, then any subsequent act requiring self-control will be compromised um, because you're using these cognitive resources and, and they're just not available going forward. So, so in that example, by foregoing that donut for breakfast, it's more difficult to choose the healthy option at lunch because you already used up some of your self-control or cognitive resources when making your breakfast decision. So that was the first model um, that your paper kind of talked about. The second model of self-control says that self-control can actually strengthen as you use it, at least in the short run, 
Um, and, and so here, by choosing not to have the donut at breakfast, you might also forego the cake at lunch. But in your study, you, you, you took kind of a different approach than, than these studies typically take. You leveraged biometric data to resolve the differences between these two models. What, what did you find, and, and which model, if any, was more accurate? So when we set out to seek what was the predominant model, we actually started by questioning all of the foundations for self-control theories and for self-control experimental and empirical work. Mm -hmm. And we challenged each and every assumption. To us, it was remarkable to find that in the academic literature, you will find literally dozens, if not hundreds of papers that were published in support of one of the theories or the other theory. Mm. And so for us, it was like a puzzle to see how is it possible that we have these two theories that are completely opposite in terms of the prediction of the outcomes, and and yet we find evidence of both in the literature. Huh. And so I think that if you're a person thinking about self-control, some of you might identify with this muscle or this kind of like your phone battery type of of self-control in the sense that you start your day and if you had a good night's rest, you feel recharged, you feel energized if you're a morning person. Uh, uh, but whenever you start your day, it's an opportunity to reset and you feel that you're fully charged. However, as you go through the day, that battery starts to, to, uh, to go down and then you find yourself less and less likely to exercise self-control throughout the day. Yeah. And I think that some of us can identify with that and it kind of makes sense uh, sure. that, that the model is acting like that in terms of the self-control. On the other hand, you may also think uh, you can also identify with the other theory, which is, well, self-control might be like a snowball. And so if I'm good at something and I'm exercising self-control by refraining from taking an action, for example, if you have quit smoking and you haven't done it in several days or if you're taking – actions to make sure that you continue to exercise the self-control, then your snowball for self-control becomes bigger. And then you say, oh, no, I'm not going to go back because I've accomplished so much already that I need this snowball to keep getting bigger and bigger and bigger. And so I think that these two models, on the one hand, have completely opposite predictions. And I think we can both ident we can identify with both of them. And so to us, it was a little bit puzzling to, to see why this is the case. Mm. And so what we found was that the missing variable in most of these papers was this level of effort that we talked about at the beginning. And so if you are asked to perform a task that requires self-control to individual A, so for example, if John is asked to perform a task that requires self-control by exercising in the morning, maybe that requires self-control from him, but not necessarily the same level of effort for somebody else. And so this differential level of effort is what explained that variable in the middle in terms of what was missing in these models. So for example, if you go to the gym in the morning and work out mildly for say 30 minutes, then that's a good way to kickstart your day and to kickstart your self-control uh, resources mm -hmm. so that you can continue to use those resources uh, throughout the rest of the day. However, if you work out too much, then you might hit that phase, that tipping point phase in which your self-control abilities are compromised 
because now you're tired and the fatigue in terms of self-control resources are completely depleted and then you start to show signs that you're less able to exercise self-control. So this is when you go work out in the morning for two hours and then by lunch you're thinking, ah, I had a good (laughs) workout this morning so I deserve to get the chocolate cake at lunch. I've read a lot on the topic of self-control and, you know, I've, I've read the work of um, Bao Meister and he's done lots and lots of work here. And it was, in fact, this wonderful article in the New York Times about decision fatigue, which was based largely on his work. And, um, and, and you're right. You can relate to it on a personal level. And, and I've presented on this topic before and I would say, and, and I admit these are extreme examples, but it's no coincidence that Policemen and casinos and drug dealers and prostitutes and bars do their business at the end of the day and not the beginning of the day because it relates directly to our ability to self-regulate through self-control and, and having enough cognitive resources to do so. So you're right. We, we all see this in our own behavior that you know, at the end of the day, we, we kind of let loose a little bit because we, our ability to self-regulate just simply biologically isn't there. The other theory was new to me when I read your paper, the, the one that says you can actually strengthen self-control by engaging in low-effort tasks that require self-control but not much, and, and by successfully navigating through that behavior, it can actually set you up for a positive self-control experience in subsequent behaviors. I think that's really interesting, and, and at the same time, like you, I can think of examples where I've done that, where kind of there was this... Um, in layman's terms, I, I felt a sense of pride by accomplishing the first, and so I, I applied that pride to more self-control in the second act. But it's interesting, you're finding that kind of a personal level, if you have a, a goal that you want to fulfill, let's say losing weight or quitting smoking, you can help manage that behavior throughout the day by subjecting yourselves to low-effort self-control tasks that can arm you with more self-control for maybe a bigger task later on. Absolutely, and and I think that one of the uh, key contributions of, of Richard Thaler's original work on self-control and Rob Baumeister's work is this idea that self-control is, is has sort of like a domain general environment in the mm-hmm. sense that one act in one domain actually affects the uh, resources available to self-control in a different domain. So exercising is somewhat related to what you eat, which is somewhat related to how much money you spend to when you go to a, the store or when you go to the mall or when you shop online. And all of these things are interconnected as opposed to self-control having this domain specificity uh, of, of, of being only available in certain contexts. Mm-hmm. But to that point, I want to talk about, you use the word effort, several times and I just want to be clear on exactly what is effort. When you say effort, is it mental effort? Is it physical effort or is it both? I think it is both. And in in the economics literature is something where you actually literally just exercise both mental and physical effort and that it has some sort of a, a remuneration of your level of effort so that there's some output associated with a different level of effort. So the key thing here is that the higher the level of effort, the higher the output that you observe. Mm -hmm. And so here in the self-control literature, this is relevant 
because everything else being equal, if you increase the level of effort for self-control, the uh, associated outcome here would be that you're reducing your mental capacity or that you're reducing your physical capacity to restrain from um, exercising self-control in the future. Yeah. That was a really helpful and important background on self-control. Hopefully, you know, everyone's tracking. Um, and, and certainly there's a lot that people can read on their own on self-control. But now let's try to make this real for folks. Let's talk about examples of how self-control plays out for a shopper, you know, when on, say, a typical shopping trip. Do not go grocery shopping when you're hungry because you have this scarcity of resources that might make you more prone to buy stuff that you don't really need mm-hmm. and so on. But some of these grocery shopping or shopping experiences actually have different pathways from the way you enter the store, you the way you walk through the store, physically search for the products to when you come out. And so you had... Um, a very nice podcast before, uh, I believe, with Carol Moser talking about impulse buying behavior. Yes. There's a reason why this impulse buying behavior happens at the end of the shopping trip as opposed to the beginning. Yes. And that's because people get so tired. The self-control uh, has probably been kicking in during the shopping experience. If they spend an hour or two shopping, uh, they might have been restraining from purchasing different things. And so they feel that they've been exercising this acts of self-control. And so when it comes to impulsivity, they might succumb to temptation a little bit easier than they do otherwise. And, and kind of here's the, here's the interesting twist is that you can do so much yourself. You know, if you don't want to have to choose not to have donuts for breakfast, well, then don't have donuts in your house, right? Because, you know, if donuts are there next to the cereal – now you're going to have to exercise self-control to not have the donuts and have the cereal, right? So that there are strategies we can use and, and we all do use um, in order to limit our, our, our need to exercise self-control. But what we don't always consider are those external forces that are breaking down our self-control that, and, and we have no idea it's happening, um, right? I mean, even the, in the... the the effort exercises that you use in your experiments, um, people didn't know that they, they were, you know, slowly grinding away at their self-control. And, um, and, 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 and to put this in terms of, you know, for marketers and shoppers, um, it, it reminds me of work that Jeff Inman did at University of Pittsburgh many years ago where he, he looked at shoppers and how during the course of a shopping trip, their self-control is being chipped away by kind of like in your example, all these, these offers that, um, you know, I didn't go in to buy these things, but you know, high hedonic products with great deals are very appealing and I have to choose not to take advantage of them. And every time I do that, and there are a gazillion of them throughout the store, I'm chipping away at my self-control. So about that, by the time I'm toward the end of my shopping trip, now I've got very little self-control, and so I acquiesce to my impulses. And, and now I'm buying the chips off of the display or the candy at the checkout and making choices that I normally wouldn't make and, and don't even necessarily want to make, but I don't have the self-control to, to keep myself from doing so. So that, that's very interesting, that work that you did and, and how you put people in situations where you ate away at their self-control without them knowing about it, and it made a difference on their decisions. 
Yes, absolutely. And and one important thing here to remember is that in many cases, these mental resources are compromised. And sometimes the most vulnerable population tends to be those who live under a, a prolonged state of scarcity. Yes. So imagine, imagine yourself going through a never-ending shopping experience or a never-ending task that requires self-control. Yeah. And so that, that's sort of like a... A, a, an area that that has been very recently explored and Manny uh, et al. And, and, and his colleagues actually conducted this beautiful experiment in which they, uh, they uh, gave people the following hypothetical condition. Imagine that your car broke down and you're going to have to go to the repair shop yeah. and you're going to have to go spend $150 to repair it. Think about how you will go about making these uh, financial burden that was unexpected to you. Right. And then they gave them a test about their fluid intelligence, a Raven's test, uh, which is a test that it's independent of acquired knowledge so they can see how the fluid intelligence of people uh, is in, in that particular moment. And they, they found no difference between subjects that were rich versus subjects that were poor hmm. in that setup. However, they changed something very very minor and they stated the exact same scenario but instead of the instead of the problem being that the repairing costs were $150 they said imagine that the cost of repairing the car are $1,500 well what happened was fascinating because the rich subsample did not react at all there was no difference in their mental capacity uh, for the rich individuals. Yeah. However, poor individuals were significantly constrained in terms of mental capacity. Mm. And just by thinking about this, and so you can imagine what might be happening here is that people are just maybe thinking about this hypothetical scenario of repairing their car, but may, they, they may also be thinking about what would I do if one of my kids gets sick? Right. What would I do if I have a, a, an emergency, a medical emergency? What would I do if, if I lose my job and all of these things that really build upon our, our mental capacities really compromise our decision making. And you can think of a scarcity of resources being of, of many different ways. And so this is kind of like what happens when people shop. It happens when people uh, borrow money. And so it's kind of sad to see this effect because essentially what it's telling us is that poverty might actually result in more poverty or prolonged poverty because if you have this scarcity of mental resources it has been shown that that makes people uh, more likely to over borrow money even at high interest rates uh, they might be less likely to save money they might be more likely to become obese and to eat unhealthy and to engage in this all in this sort of of bad economic behavior they, they're more prone to uh, antisocial behavior and criminal activity. They're more likely to cheat. Uh, and so there's all of this antisocial behavior that happens because there are not enough mental resources for us to act optimally. And so when we think about rational economic behavior and everything relies on us using the mental capacity to evaluate different options, you know, it's difficult for us to act rationally in terms of what we believe the traditional definition of rationality is, perhaps we should be thinking about a new way of acting rationally. 
Meaning if the decision requires too much effort and the benefits of that decision are not necessarily as big. So I, if I'm going to choose a, a brand of orange juice, you know, I do not really want to go to the grocery store and taste every single possible brand of orange juice in the, in the aisle right. because it might not be rational for me to do that, even though that's what full information requires for rationality. And so it, it, it still might be rational in a behavioral sense, in the sense that people are still optimizing the cost and the benefits of engaging in an action. Well, it, you know, it's that understanding that made sense for me, the data I was looking at about store brands and who is more and less likely to purchase store brands. And in fact, low-income uh, households are less likely to buy store brands. And we're more likely to buy the more expensive national brands. And it makes sense because if, if you are living kind of under those, you know, constant stress conditions, which are, you know, just, again, eating away at your self-control, then what do you do when you're in a state of low self-control? You make the easy choice. And private label is not the easy choice, you know, other than price. Um, but the national brand is. It's, it's safe. We have all these positive mental associations. It just becomes a default choice. We kind of have to talk ourselves into choosing private label instead. And if you don't have the cognitive resources to do so um, or self-control to do so, then, then you won't. And so, um, so for people with very high self-control, you know, store brands can be a very appealing, appealing choice. People with low self-control, you know, will, will often just kind of default to the easy choice, which is I'll just buy the national brand. No, you're absolutely right. I agree with you 100%. And, and it's fascinating to see how these things shape uh, in terms of the choice architecture of the default choices. Yep. And this has really brought about all of these that you were talking about in terms of the demand for commitment devices or people pre-committing to take actions before they actually show up there. So this would be like people showing up and having a list and sticking to the list of items they're supposed to purchase, for example. Uh, and simplicity, it's essential in this context because the more complex the decision is, the less likely that people are going to take an action. And so think about Netflix. And this is an example I always like to give. How many of us, when we get the time to sit down and, and try to enjoy a movie, will sit down and start browsing titles in, on Netflix and then think, oh my gosh, there's absolutely nothing <laughs> and you know it's hard to believe that with so, so many uh, very smart people working in these algorithms so create things that you might like based on your previous experiences and yet we do not we find it very difficult to find a title and it's because we have so many choices mm -hmm. and this this is this concept of choice overload or having too many choices to actually make up your mind because you might be more likely to regret uh, the decision you made because you didn't choose so many different alternatives. And this concept actually comes back to, to actually uh, uh, make people regret these decisions. And, and, and simplicity is crucial here. And we are starting to see a big movement for uh, enacting simple uh, different ways for people to make decisions while still preserving the freedom of choice. So now we have, for example, restaurants here in Texas uh, where you can go and there are only two options in the menu. And surprisingly, they're in the complaining. People love it. 
because yeah. they have less options to regret. They come out thinking that the restaurant environment was better, the food quality was better, and that they had more fun. And there's even one restaurant that has uh, one menu item. Essentially, you go and you eat what the chef prepares. Guess what? There's a waiting list of months. <laughs> Uh, and this is because if you make it easier for people to enjoy. And so rather than having thousands and thousands of titles in, 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 in a provider like Netflix, you know, if you're trapped in an environment where there's only one movie playing, you would probably enjoy that movie a lot more because there's nothing else for you to regret not choosing. Yeah, that's a, that's a great example of, of the restaurant. Um, you know, and anytime we as marketers can make choices easier for people, we're, we're just doing them a service and, and ourselves a service because, you know, when you violate effort and make it, make it too effortful, then what you get is abandonment, right? People, people choose not to choose. And that doesn't certainly help the marketers or, or the shoppers. And so by making things very easy, I hate to use Amazon as an example because Amazon is always used as, as an example, but, you know, they have Amazon's choice or like top seller or, or other designations that help you to filter through the unlimited options for any given search based on the star system. And that's helpful. But then, you know, you see that flag, Amazon's choice. And it's like, well, let me start here. And, and that serves as the benchmark from which I can, might compare, you know, one or two other things. But it, it just makes it such a pleasurable experience. And, you know, the conversion rates are therefore very, very high. If I'm doing... Uh, research for a category, let's say, you know, the candy aisle. And I want to know whether or not people are in a higher or low state of self-control. Is, is there a question that I can ask, um, you know, one or two questions that I can ask that will give me a response that ideally I can compare to a, a benchmark to know, you know, if they score 10, then their self-control is high. If they score a one, their self-control is low because I know the national average score is five. Um, is there anything like that that you're aware of? Well, uh, there are some questions that look at impulsivity uh, rather than self-control. Okay. Um, what I envision here is using all of the devices that we're currently using for research mm -hmm. in real time. And so all of the tools that we're developing in the lab today, right. and we have a paper in the, in the Journal of Frontiers of Neuroscience, where we can successfully predict whether somebody's going to buy a product or not with more than 80% accuracy without even asking the person anything, just by mm. looking at their brains. Mm. Uh, and now we have models in which we're trying to understand how the brain of the person works by looking simply at their pupil size. Because the idea here is when people uh, are scanned in an fMRI machine, it takes about two seconds for the blood strand to go to the brain so we can see which regions of the brain are being active. Well, in a similar situation, there are other physiological responses that people make when the brain activates that might have similar lags. And so they might be some regions of the brain that are being active. And, and we can observe that by looking at the pupil size. Yeah. So it's out of the questions that you may have high resolution cameras that right. may track this type of activity uh, so you can understand what's happening in the brain of the person without necessarily uh, intervening and reading the person's brain. And so I think that the future of this area is not necessarily in asking people what to do, 
on the contrary, is using all of the work that we're developing now in our lab and in many other uh, amazing labs around the world and use those same algorithms to use the technology to uh, do this in real time so that people will not necessarily even have to ask you, do you like this or not? Uh, we would just look at their pupil size and understand whether they like it or not. Right. And, and I totally agree with you because, you know, <laughs> it's almost foolish to try to ask a question, you know, hey, do you have low self-control? I mean, you know, who wants to answer yes to that? So I, I like using biometric proxies to get there because, you know, hopefully you're getting past cognitive filters that can, at a uh, explicit level, uh, disguise the fact that maybe you, you actually do have low self-control, but you're trying to project that you don't. So this topic of self-control is, is just wonderful. There's so much more to talk about on self-control than what we have. And again, I encourage people to look into it because it's got a lot of tentacles and for marketers, the, the implications and opportunities are just are overwhelming. So hopefully this has tickled people's curiosity and, and motivated them to learn more. But I want to now talk a little bit about your human behavior lab, because I think that's where you did this work, is it not? Yes, absolutely. Okay. So, so tell us about the lab and, 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 you know, and the type of work that you do there in addition to this. Yes, so the lab... It started as a dream among three friends, and we were puzzled by many of these economic questions, and we wanted to understand not only the outcomes and not only to have the mathematical models that would predict what people do and that will give us close enough valuations, but we really wanted to understand what drives people, what motivates people to take actions. Mm. So anything that is related to human behavior from what people choose to eat and how that relates to their uh, nutrition and their propensity to, to chronic diseases like obesity and diabetes and others are things that are really uh, at the core of our research agenda. I'm sure a lot of people conjure up an image in their mind when they hear the term human behavior lab. Um, and, and all of our images are probably different. What does it look like? What I, I walk into the front entrance, and, and what does your lab look like? So when you come into the uh, into the uh, the human behavior lab, what you would find is one of the uh, the largest academic laboratory in the world with the capacity to collect uh, neurophysiological data simultaneously. We have uh, 24 units available, and 16 of those units have uh, the capacity to do eye tracking, to do facial expressions, to look at emotions, uh, to do EEG, to scan um, the brain of participants, and we can do galvanic skin responses. We can do all of this simultaneously. Wow. So the first experiments that we were running before we actually opened the doors of the lab, it would take you know, literally months, two to three months per experiment to run one single experiment because you had to do one subject at a time. Right. Today, we can run those same experiments in a couple of days. So we can increase the speed uh, of the data collection process. But more importantly, we can play interactive games mm. in which the outcome of one person may become what the other person sees and they can play these interactive settings. Oh, wow. And so sometimes we have groups of two or three or more people, four people, and they're interacting with each other, 
and, and so this interactive setting is pretty important because it's reflective, it's more reflective of, of what really happens in the real world where human beings are not making decisions in isolation, but they're making decisions by the influence of other individuals around them. And the second component is that we do uh, incentivize experiments, which means that everything that we do in the lab has consequences, whether those consequences are monetarily. So if you tell me you're going to give money to charity, you actually have to put that money mm. and we show you that the money goes to the charity. And so everything that we do has uh, this incentive compatibility, which means that it has real money, real markets in real settings. I love that. I love that. I think that's really, really important. It has to have consequences. Otherwise, you know, people can do or say whatever they want, often things that they believe, you know, you want them to say or exhibit. So having the actual consequences is going to get you actual behavior. So I love that. You know, I listened to the podcast that you did with Carol Yoon, and you guys were talking about these hurdles in terms of connecting businesses with academia. Yes. And so one of the big things that we're trying to do is we want to work with businesses to see how we can help them. Mm -hmm. uh, and helping businesses means that they will actually help their customers uh, be more satisfied so that we can find partnerships in which everybody can have uh, a win-win relationship. So you have happy customers that find value in the products that the businesses sell and so on. And so I think that those connections are something that we take very seriously. We partner with businesses, with industries, with cities, with municipalities and mm. with different uh, areas to try to see how we can leverage what we do to see it implemented in the real world. That is great. So let's say, you know, for people who want to learn more about how to do that, do you, is there a website? Um, you know, where, where, do, where would people begin the journey of, hey, I want to, you know, I want to partner on something? Yes, they can go to uh, HBL for Human Behavior Laboratory mm -hmm. dot TAMU for Texas A&M University dot EVU. And there they would find uh, some information about the type of work that we do, some of the ongoing projects so they can get an idea of the diversity of things that we undertake. And also they can also get a flavor of how we complement some of the work that we do in the lab. Yeah. And by the lab, I mean inside the actual physical laboratory here to isolate behavior and how we use that to leverage and understand the behavior outside of the lab in a more real world environment. So, Marco, the website that you gave, um, it does work. I checked it out. Uh, it looks very cool, and i got to play with it. If people want to learn more about you and the work you're doing, um, is, is it this website that's the best way for them to do that, or do you have any other websites or contact information that uh, people should use? I think that the website is the best way to get in touch with us. There is contact information. There are samples of some of our ongoing work. Um, and, and so I think that's a bit, the best way to reach us is through an email or a call to the inf contact information available in the website. We're always, um, happy to partner with, with, uh, people and businesses in particular. I think that, uh, I'm, I'm probably inclined to think that most of the people who listen to your podcast are not the average business in the sense that they might be more sophisticated that the average uh, listener, and if they're already thinking and implementing some of these uh, concepts, obviously some of these things that we talk about today might be very 
basic to them, but we can definitely talk about areas and ways in which we can partner and, and see how we can leverage what we are doing and, and help uh, uh, to, to, to coordinate a mutual, uh, benef- mutually beneficial relationship. Right, right. That's, this is terrific. Um, I mean, I've, I've absolutely enjoyed our conversation on self-control and uh, good to talk with someone who's done their own research there and groundbreaking research uh, at that. But also the fact that you have this lab, I think is a wonderful resource for yourself, for your, your affiliated faculty you know, and other partners and uh, I'm glad that you make it available uh, potentially to business partners as well. So it'll be interesting to see where this thing goes. The dream of having the largest lab in the world is not the end. It's actually the beginning. Maybe some people who are listening to you would like to be partners in crime and, and accomplish something together with us. Well, um, certainly there are a lot of potential partner in crimes out there. So I hope, um, I hope other than myself, um, you're going to get some, some good, good response uh, based on your invitation. So awesome. Well, Marco, this has been just really terrific. I've enjoyed speaking with you. Um, thanks for taking the time to, to tell us more about the Human Behavior Lab and, and the work that you're doing there. So, um, so thank you for all of that. And uh, you know, we may have another topic in the future. We will uh, reconnect on maybe another, another podcast episode on, on a different subject. Oh, it's my pleasure. Thank you very much for having me. You are quite welcome. Uh, Take care now. Bye. I hope you enjoyed today's episode, and I'd like to give a special thanks to Decision Breakers for making today's episode possible. We'll see you next time on Shoppernomics.